When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi, my name is Harry. My dad is the CEO of Intelligence Squared. I have four things to say. First of all, Intelligence Squared runs amazing online debate courses and camps for kids with a great organisation called Debate Mate. I've taken two of them. They were awesome. It made me feel self-confident. Now I don't feel shy. Second, if you don't live in the UK but want to do a course, Intelligence Squared will put on one for you if you can get at least 10 kids to sign up. This means you can live anywhere in the world and get the best Oxford-style debating training. My third point is, please go to intelligencesquared.com slash mydebate for more details. And in closing, here's my final statement. Debate Mate also works with adults and professionals. Same deal. Form your own group or class at least 10 people. Fill out a form at intelligencesquared.com slash mydebate and we'll put on the course whenever works for you. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Quick reminder before we go to this week's episode of a few blockbuster events and podcasts coming up in the next few weeks as we approach that pivotal US election on November 3rd. Next week on Wednesday, October 28th, we'll be hosting a live and online event with no other than John Bolton, Donald Trump's former national security advisor. And he'll be speaking to Emily Maitlis about what it's like inside the Trump administration and what might be going through Donald Trump's mind in this current moment. It should be a fascinating event. And just after that, we'll be hosting a podcast with Representative Ilhan Omar, who will be speaking to Dr. Cornell West about the future of social justice in America. So some really big names and we'll be hosting quite a bit around the US election. And if you would like to join these events live and ask your questions to the speakers, you can do so by going to intelligencesquared.com slash plus 
and subscribing today for the monthly or annual offer. And why not use our special discount for podcast listeners? Just type in podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T at the checkout and you get 20% off. Now moving on to today's podcast, we are joined by Tamara Payne, who is co-author with her father, the late Les Payne, of a new book, The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X. And she spoke to the writer Yasmin Abdel-Majid about the life and legacy of one of the most formative figures of the civil rights movement. It's a really fascinating episode, and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for the book in the podcast description. Now, let's go to the episode. Hello, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Yasmin Abdel-Majid. I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, Tamara Payne, co-author of the new book, The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X. A quick reminder, if you enjoy today's podcast, don't forget to press the like button and subscribe to the channel. And if you have any thoughts on our discussion, let us know what you think in the comment sections below. So, Tamara, thank you for agreeing to have this conversation. I, as a young black Muslim woman myself, obviously Malcolm X was uh, a big figure in my sort of growing up and political coming of age. And so I was really fascinated to pick up The Dead Are Arising because we get to see and to read so much that perhaps we, the texture and the nuance, and I think there's this quote that I want to read, um, the contextualization of Malcolm's life against the racial conflicts, violence and aspirations of 21st, of the of 20th century America. Um, so before we get into all of that, let's talk about how Malcolm started? What was his childhood like? What was the world? I mean, you also tell a really interesting story about his family and when he was still when he was still in his mother's belly, a fetus. You know, he has there was an incident that occurred that perhaps foreshadows so much of his life. And so, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, in America, well. I'm American, and, and, and so a lot of my, what I'm going to say is, is going to be about how Malcolm is presented to us in America. I mean, I've traveled around the world too, but it's it's really, you know, for me, Malcolm is, is in America right now. I know he's gone out in the world and he has a different image, but he was born into a racist cauldron, right? I was born in Omaha, Nebraska in 1925. This is about thinking about the red summer of 1919, which was also throughout the South and the North, but it was when the black veterans who were fighting in Europe came back to the United States. They were fighting for American freedoms, right? Of all American people. But when they come back, they can't buy homes where they want to because of land covenants that say that you cannot sell this land to black families. They cannot get, they will not, cannot get jobs because people will not hire them. Why? Because they're black. Schools are segregated. They're not. They're denied access to simple, regular things that you need just to move move on with your life to progress, right? But when you come back to this, and you're like you're fighting for these rights, and you come back and you don't even have them. Mm-hmm. So they started moving. They started to make changes and and make demands, and they were greeted with a white, violent backlash. It culminates, there was a red summer of 1919, where all in different cities from, you know, around the South and in the Midwest and even up North. And what was happening is because it it was all about the jobs, white men feeling that Blacks should not have jobs over them. And they use all kinds of ways to find ways to lynch them. Now in the South, you had all these laws. If you even met you know, made direct eye contact with white men and didn't get out of their way, 
if they punched you or or even killed you, there was no charges for them, right? And the interesting thing as well, if I can jump in, is it wasn't just it, like it also include white men who were immigrants. You there were stories of not not, and so even though these were American citizens who had returned fighting from you know fighting a war as American citizens, they came back, and even folks who had immigrated to the country felt entitled, and that also complicated things further. Mm-hmm. Yes. It did, and particularly with the Omaha incident, you, when you you will read in this book, I don't want to go into great detail of that, but it's it's really important to see how mm. you know the layout of that because it really does paint you know what that environment was like. It was violent. There was this entitlement, and you know, and there were a lot of lies. Like you read these stories of you know even white men you know, putting on black face and, and, and attacking women. And, and then they say, Oh, it was a black man that did it. And it was really, it, and it wasn't. And, and the, you know, and the lynching of Will Brown in 1919 was, is a terrible incident, but mm. because this was an innocent man, you know, he had rheumatism, he had a rheumatoid arthritis and mm. they're saying that he had raped this young woman and uh, <laughs> just, you know, yeah. And so anyway, the, Malcolm, Malcolm's family had not moved into Omaha at that point, but they moved in a few years after that. And Omaha was still reeling from that. You know, there was still fear instilled in, in black people and black families there and, you know, and, and white citizenry, but there was still thriving. I mean, they still had their businesses, their churches and, and, but it was very separate, you know, Mm. very, you know, it was a very separate existence. So and Malcolm's father and family were followers of Garvey, the Marcus Garvey. So that was the kind of, they themselves were sort of politically active, would you say? Absolutely. And that is how they got into, uh, how, why they moved to Omaha. They, um, Malcolm's father, Earl Little Sr., and his mother, Louise, she, they met, like, Louise Langdon, they met in Canada at a Marcus Garvey meeting. You, at a universal, universal Negro Improvement Association meeting in Canada. And they met and they, you know, they really were attracted to the idealist ideas of Garveyism and what he was proving, which was basically, you know, Black pride and, and self-determination and building up your businesses and, and Black pride wherever you are in the world, you know, because mm. Garvey was not American. He was from Jamaica. Mm. So he he just in an exist, you know, just the appearance of him is, is international. You know, he's not even, you know, from America, but he, he had this ideal and, and, and it appealed to a lot of working class families in America, black families in particular. And, and, you know, and this whole thing of how we see ourselves and, and dressing up for these parades and, but, but this whole, his whole, all of his slogans also, you know, embrace who you are and, and, and rise up. And, and these are, these are all things that we needed to hear when you're in these environments that there's this violent tension. You need that. You need that, you know, to, to fight back, to just get out of bed mm. sometimes. Right. Mm. So, um, Garvey is very important his parents met and they, they were attracted to the movement. They were members of the group. And, and as a leader of, you know, what Earl little senior, he was, his charge was really to like go to different places, kind of where black families weren't necessarily there and just kind of encourage them to go there and organize them. Mm. 
And he always would look for places where they, you know, weren't really organized. And the other thing is they, he tended to look for being places, not necessarily where the black people were. He would go places where it was the immigrants, the Polish and the Italians. And, you know, so there's already, yes, there may have been tension, but it was like, you, you, he would go there. He was unafraid to do that. And also because mm-hmm. he wanted to own land. His family, you know, Earl, little senior, the Littles in, in Georgia, they were landowners, you know, and, and yes, Earl Little Senior also had a, had a previous marriage. And so there were children from that. And you'll, and his half sisters from Ella is from that marriage. And she uh, is also very important in Malcolm's life. But mm-hmm. just right now though, she, he, he, he hasn't met those people, his, those siblings yet. In Omaha, this is kind of the world that they're, you know, they're moving into and working and, you know, cultivating and, and, and living, you know, and yes, while the Earl Little is organizing families in, in, in and around Omaha, KKK visits the, uh, the local KKK chapter, you know, visits the Little family looking for Earl Little too, because they don't like this and they want to, um, they, they want Negroes to be afraid. They want them in their place. They don't want them, you know, rising up, looking them in the eye. They don't want them making demands on them once. And this happens everywhere, right? You know, I mean, I, I, I hear stories from all around the world where people say that when, you're, when you set, make, start making demands, people start characterizing as being bad and mm. negative or you're not following the rules. And we're not giving the benefit of the doubt, mm. right? So that's a little bit of that. But that's what he was born into. They flourish, you know, and, and they, you know, Malcolm was born. And, and his, father, his father dies soon after, though. Doesn't he? 1931. Mm. His father dies in 1931. But they moved. They moved from Omaha to Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Mm. And then they also moved to end up settling in Lansing, Michigan. And in each place is like they were still looking for other places to settle in. And, and, in land, and in Michigan, again, you know, land covenants exist and they run into problems with that. They're chased off the land because black families can't, they're not supposed to own the land, mm. you know, and, and they did buy some land and, and the neighbors didn't like them and, and they tried to evict them and, and they moved to evict them and they went through eviction proceedings and, and they had to leave. But before they left, the, they, their house was burnt down, you know, and then soon after that, he, Earl Sr. died. He was mm. not killed as Malcolm has led everybody. And, and this is this is a big thing in the a, a, a big revelation in a sense because Malcolm's story certainly has been that his father was lynched. Right. Yeah, and given the circumstances, it's easy to think that that could happen. You know, mm. and but that's not Malcolm. Keep in mind, Malcolm was young. He was he it was nineteen thirty one. So Malcolm's what six years old. Mm. We're, we kind of already got into the middle of this, but the initial reason why my dad got into writing this book is because he met Malcolm's older brothers, Philbert and Wilfred, and they're very key to Malcolm's life in a sense, particularly Wilfred, who was Malcolm's best friend, and Philbert, who was a couple years older than Malcolm. And my father met them in 1990 and, and interviewed first Philbert and had a seven or eight hour interview with him. and. You know, and he was just amazed. And he came back and he was speaking with a colleague here, Gil Noble, who also had a black television show here called Like It Is, which is very important to our community. <laughs> and, um, and Gil Noble, who also, you know, 
was admiring Malcolm. He said, which brother did you speak to? And he says, Wilfred's the one you need to speak to. So my father says, okay. He goes back and he gets to meet, you know, he said, I want to meet Wilfred. And he is introduced to Wilfred. And, you know, and what he learned from them, and me personally, I was not in, in the country at the time. I, had, I was teaching English in China. And then when I came back, my father was talking about meeting these brothers. Mm. and processing it and it was he was just processing he hadn't you know he wasn't sure what to make out of it you know and it, and let's also keep in mind this is 1990 and, and Malcolm's in the air rappers are, are singing about Malcolm he's kind of going through another renaissance although I like to argue that Malcolm never left the scene after he died I mean people were always reading his autobiography and when the speeches were printed people were reading those also whenever they wherever they get their hands on it so you know, and that's how you you have rappers who are able because they're already familiar with and they know the story, and and he appealed to them. So they're rapping, and there's this kind of this renaissance going. Spike Lee's working on his movie, and that you know eventually comes out, and Dad's just processing these interviews he had, and he said, you know, we don't know a lot about Malcolm. I said, I thought we knew everything we needed to know from the autobiography and from. The lectures them from the speeches you know I thought I knew everything you know but he says but these childhood stories the family you know it, it, and he just knew there was more and the thing about mm. for dad was that what always intrigued him about stories was what was new about it and and I, I like to interject some of the other stories he my father covered were you know the sweater uprising in 1976 in South Africa and that just really really putting names and faces you know on who was affected by this and while everybody's talking about you know divestment from you know South Africa he really was showing you in his series that he did for Newsday you know names and faces and he interviewed he interviewed Robert Sabukwe if anybody any rare it's a rare interview yeah. um he he didn't interview mandela because he was in jail but mm-hmm. he was able to, he did interview robert sabukwe and many others and he really was intrigued by that that you know struggle and again it's because it was new and what he can tell about that story but getting back to malcolm because <laughs> this is all to me it's all important and this is an international you know audience i'm sure and and it's these are all connected stories because Malcolm, he did, Malcolm knew about the struggle in South Africa. So he, he was very on, into that. He talked about it in some of his speeches, you know, he talked about apartheid, you know, so it's, they're all connected. So getting back to Omaha and, and, and well, more Lansing and, and the father's passing. What happened is that Earl Little, he was going on, you know, he had a, he was going on one of his errands in which he was speaking or organizing with family. And he slipped on a slippery, um, there were paved streets. Not just paved, but they were like brick. And it was uneven. He slipped and he fell under and a, and a streetcar was coming on and it hit him. And he, and he died from the injuries from that. Mm-hmm. But he, um, it was a police officer that was called to the, um, to the scene and, and Earl was still alive and he, the police officer said he got his story from him and he Earl was like telling where he lived and said, please get my wife. And he, this police officer went. Now the person who's also at the door with his mother is Wilfred. Mm. Who's older. And who recounts the story. And he recounts the story. And so it is these two brothers, you know, and who really kind of give us insight into what Malcolm was like and, you know, what was he like as a child? 
he was a, pretty much a good kid. You know, he was precocious. He was very smart, but he was also very close to his father. And so this thing of his father dying, this missing father figure, it, it, it really affects Malcolm. And he drifts after that. And it's hard. I mean, the whole family's drift. I mean, this is, he was the, Earl was the breadwinner. I mean, Louise also was earning money too with everything. She was, she was a seamstress. She was, you know, she was doing all kinds of things, cooking and all that and, and, and helping selling, you know, um, off, you know, their vegetables from their farm and all that kind of stuff. But it was like, he was really their breadwinner and he was also building their house and, and, I mean, Wilfred recounts some of that for us in the interviews about how his father was building the house, you know, and it was just, and they were moving into it, you know. Yeah. And so after the death of, of his father, things sort of, that would you say then becomes the kind of the inciting incident for the rest of sort of Malcolm's childhood and teenage years until he sort of ends up perhaps in prison and on to the next chapter? Well, as he gets older, I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, I think that it's part of when you miss your father, Mm. miss any parent at that age, it's an important age, Mm. six. I mean, you're not going to be the same. That's an important age to lose a parent. But as a teenager, I would argue that teenagers individuate, Mm. you know, and they get into things. They can have two parents, they can have four parents (laughs) and grandparents and still, get into things that you don't want them to get into. It's not an <laughs> anomaly, true. Yeah. you know? <laughs> it's, this is not an anomaly. So take us forward a little bit and let's look at how Malcolm went from from sort of being a kid who misses his father to, to someone who's a political revolutionary, say, shall we say. What, what, how, how did that happen? And perhaps also give us a little bit of insight into what what your father found new in those stories as well because we we know we know that story from the autobiography perhaps or from Spike Lee's film but what do you think came out new in in what we find out during this time it was more of a process and and it was a process that's not unlike a lot of people who are growing up but i think what's most important and what's brilliant about this book and my father's analysis is that he puts it in a context of the times, you know, Mm. so when Earl Little dies, it's, it's the height of the great depression in America and all families are struggling, not just the littles and not just black families, all families are struggling. And so it's, it's, it's very difficult. These are difficult times for everybody. And, and, and wartime is, you know, is wartime. And, and so we, he, we really put it in a context of what's going on. And so thinking about being a teenager during those times, as opposed to healthier times or happier times, or when you have a better economy times, you know, and, and still dealing with black backlash and violence, because that's always going to be the undercurrent. It's, it's the way America is. You know? mm. um, it's, uh, there's always, you know, it's always an undercurrent. The pro- it, it, he grows up and he's he drifts. He gets into petty crimes, you know, as far as you know, cutting school and smoking pot, and you know. But to me, like I said, for me, that's not really unusual for teenagers. Mm. You know, mm. Teenagers do these types of things. But what happened is that the law got involved with him, mm. 
and his family is already being ripped apart. He has mm -hmm. no father figure to kind of set him. And it's one thing when you, when you have, you don't have a father figure to really kind of put you back into line or that parent put you in the line. The mother's struggling to keep all, at this point, seven children in, in line with the help of Wilfred, who's the oldest, you know, so they're, they're struggling to keep, you know, make sure they don't get, they lose their house, the farm. I mean, that's valuable to them. So they're mm. struggling to make sure they keep that. And Malcolm is, is drifting. Filbert is drifting, you know. And so, you know, when they get into trouble and then also their mother gets committed because this is incredible pressure for her. You know, mm -hmm. it's really incredible pressure for her. And so she gets committed and, you know, Wilfred, you know, he has, you know, he continues to step up to keep the family intact as best he can. And, you know, and Malcolm gets kind of sent off into reformatory school and, and he goes into Mason and he's staying with a white family and he's at a, he's integrating with the white students and he becomes friends with them, but he's also repeating the seventh grade. Mm. And so what he was doing back in Lansing, he did not do well, but he goes to Mason and he's repeating this and he's kind of more, he's seen as a mascot, but he's, you know, he's socializing more, he's being more social and, and it's all new and it's interesting and he really wants to see what this is about. And, you know, he's curious, but again, we're talking 13-year-old Malcolm. Mm. And, and, and I, I want to keep in people in mind that these are teen years and he gets a lot, he does a lot of living in his teen years. Uh, his hustling days in, in, in the East Coast is all during his teen years also. So he goes into reform school and he experiences, you know, repeating and, and these friendships but these friendships you know again it's kind of like they're friends with him but then it's kind of like they're not really getting to know him mm. you know as a black the culture like his family mm. and he's away from his family so it's like he it's new experience but it's also you know he there's their surface is surface friendship mm. and there's kind of like a, a line drawn still and you see that, you know, in, in the book, and that happens. I mean, this is, again, mm -hmm. not unusual with particularly those of us who, who are in those situations around the world, and that still exists today. And so I want to get out of that in that he gets back. Um, he, he has also, when he, his father dies, he meets Ella, the half-sister who's from the previous marriage, and she's older. He's impressed with her, and he really wants her, he begs her, you know, at one point to like, please get me out of here, you know, mm. like, and also in, in, in Mason, you know, he's, he flourishes, but then he's also kind of taken out of that situation. He's put in with the uh, West Indian family, the lions who actually were friends of his mother. And, you know, and he feels a kind of way. And it's like, it's, it's a lot of turbulence. I wouldn't say it was just mm. because he was with, he's with the white family. Now he's with the black. And it's not that, it's just, there's a lot of turbulence just going on, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he's like, this got to be something else, you know? And it's, he goes to his sister and she didn't want him living with the white family either. So she got him to be her charge and got him to Boston. And then Boston opens his eyes to a whole new environment. And that's where he meets his friend, Malcolm Jarvis, who's a musician. And we talk how he gets into these nightclubs. And again, still a teenager <laughs> and that yeah I mean that people people have to read the book because I think there is so much there's so much um texture and nuance and richness to all of these stories in a way that we have I mean that's the the beauty of the 
all the work and all the interviews that your yourself and your father have done, I think. So definitely this is just a taste of <laughs> of all the different stories. <laughs> a taste. Okay, so fast forward, he's now in jail and that's kind of where he gets a spiritual awakening. But what's also happening at the same time, you know, Wilfred is older too and he's mm. working in Michigan. He's still, you know, outside of Detroit. And you know, and he's searching too because it is work, but then he's like, what about community? Because keep in mind, they were, their parents were following followers of government, which was all about black community. And mm-hmm. so he, that's still a driving force. And the underlying thing of Garveyism is that it, it, it not only is a background for the, um, the little family and Malcolm and, and all of it follows, it is the, you know, is always there in Malcolm in all of his speeches and how he looks at us. It, that's Garveyism, right? About the pride and how we look at ourselves and, and be proud of ourselves and standing up, you know? And then when he raises those questions about, you know, all these things, these bad things are happening to us, but who are we in, in allowing that to happen, you know? And he's questioning that. And again, because it's Garvey gave us the answer, of just stand up, be proud of who you are. And so, I mean, and this is, this is important, but also Garveyism is, is the, is underlying of the nation of Islam. It is also underlying the movement for the Moorish Science Temple. And why? Because these were also groups founded by Black people or focusing on Black communities and really just about how to survive and build their businesses and, and moving up. Garveyism is, is, the, is, is a through line through all of this, you know, and they have different takes on it, but that whole independent and building your own business, your own temples, your, your own areas of where you meet and congregate, that's, that's still there. And that's, and a lot of it has to do with Garveyism. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. Wilfred, basically he gets into the nation, he comes across the nation of Islam through a meeting he's brought to by an associate and he he's intrigued by some of the ideas and he sees it as something he can, he can grow with. And because it reminds him of what they talked about in the home. And, and so he, he, he sees it as something he can grow. Then he, he brings his family into his, his siblings into it. And he gets his brothers to, you know, he gets Reginald to go talk to Malcolm in jail about, this thing about and the other things about what it also brings is discipline you know so it's about dietary it's about stop smoking it's about you know no more drugs and and it's, it's about you know cleaning your body and, and treating that in a healthy way and so he he tests Reginald talked to his brother about that and then he talks it to him and he said I always found this interesting was that Malcolm and all the things that they talked about and of course blue-eyed devil was the you know, thing that Elijah Muhammad was talking, this comes from Elijah Muhammad. Malcolm had a problem with that <laughs> when he was in jail. And That's, yeah, it's fascinating. But again, it gets into the internalized internalization of self-hatred, right? Mm-hmm. Malcolm thought that black, white people could be, you know, they were, you could work with them. They were good in the sense that, you know, they trusted him with making money and giving him enough money. And his brother had explained what this, what that game was, you know, what that con was. And, and, and he, when he explained it and it, it really kind of made his brother, made Malcolm realize, okay, wow. Like I was really taking more risks 
And I was just, you know, I was an expense, you know, to them. So that's, but it took some talking to him to, Mm. to get him to realize that, to accept that. And it took a while. But then when Malcolm comes out, he's into the nation. He sees this as something because while Malcolm's in jail, he's reading a lot. He's reading dictionaries. He's reading philosophy. He meets Bembry, who's already in jail, who's, a, who's at this point a philosopher himself. And he, he educates Malcolm and he teaches, you know, gets him to debate. And he tells Malcolm about how steering him away from the physical and more to the mind and mm. using your mind and using words to fight and not your fists. And, you know, and, and Malcolm is so Malcolm's working on that track. And his family's working on the track of getting him to how to, to be more spiritual, especially with the, um, the nation of Islam and the, and the thinking. So that helps him, you know, when he comes out, he has something to land. And his family, family is very important, as I kind of talked about earlier. Family, his family helps him. They give him a place to land. And I think what we what we get to see very much is the role of, and perhaps that's a reflection of the interviews being done with Wilfred and so on, the role that they play in, in introducing Nation of Islam and giving him, giving Malcolm the support. So there's so much that happens once he comes out, his involvement with the nation, his interactions with Elijah and how that changed over time, Elijah Muhammad. I'm curious, one of the stories that your father finds out about that hasn't, that details haven't been readily available before is his meeting with the KKK. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think it's kind of important to understand, again, context, because a lot of people yes. keep saying, is this new? And, you know, and, and why is this, you know, so crazy? Well, I think it's it's important to understand the roles of where we are in, 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 in the civil rights time. movement. In 19, and this is in 1961. You have Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Group, the, S, the Southern Christian Leadership Convention, and others, you know, the civil rights leaders who are, and there's this saying, segregation, you know, it, it gives a false sense of superiority to the segregator and a false sense of inferiority to the segregatee. And what Martin Luther King and his group were working on was the segregator and changing their mind through changing their laws. And that's how we're getting the Voters' Rights Act, for example, in 1965, desegregation, integration of schools. They're pushing for all of these things, changing their minds of the segregator, right? Malcolm and the Nation of Islam is working on the segregatee, the Black people, and changing their minds about themselves. And so getting rid and working on that false sense of inferiority. And so segregator, I mean, so in dealing with you know, desegregation, which is what Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement are dealing with, civil rights groups are dealing with is, is changing those laws so that people can go to school together and, and get an education, get access to jobs, access to transportation, access to, you know, buying homes. All this is about access, 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 right? And to do these things. We're not even saying give it to us for free. We're saying give us access so that we can do this. And the nation's view is we don't want to deal with white folks. <laughs> at all you know so what we want is we want land we want to have our own thing and we don't want to deal with y'all at all we don't want to vote (laughs) you know we want to be separate we want to have our own thing separate we don't we're not we're not desegregation we're not we don't want to integrate at all and then you have the clan who's like pretty much state sanctioned at this point you know and always had been who are want to enforce segregation 
So those you have these different parties and 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 these are their positions. So the meeting when you have come when it comes to this meeting, that's what's at play. So Elijah Muhammad finds a way to um he wants to have a meeting which they can negotiate with the clan to help them either get this land to form the separate state or to give them free access so that they can negotiate this stuff and not be harassed, you know, stop, you know, chasing us down and, you know, stopping us and telling us got to be out by sundown if you know who we are, you know? Yeah. So he, he, that's what he's, he wants to negotiate that. Malcolm does not want to, he really wants to have a confrontation with the KKK. He obviously, for obvious reason, he believes that they killed his father Mm-hmm. He's aware that they came, they knocked, they harassed his family when he was in utero. Mm. So he doesn't have good feelings about this. And his view is he wanted to kind of have a standoff with them. Mm. And Elijah Muhammad, who is the leader of the Nation of Islam, Malcolm is not the leader of the Nation of Islam. It is Elijah Muhammad. So he has to follow Elijah Muhammad's rules. He's doing all of these things while in the Nation of Islam with the permission of Elijah Muhammad. So he has to answer to him. And so he's like, not happy about going into that meeting. But he also wants, he's not going to not go into the meeting because he's like, it's his chance to say, well, what, what can't, what's going to happen? He wants to see what's going to happen, obviously. And he wants to be able to have some kind of influence on it. He doesn't want them to walk away thinking that they got something and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and they handed everything off. That's why, you know, and you have to read that, how it plays out. But, yeah, he wants, he definitely wants to influence that meeting, you know, and mm-hmm. he really wants to influence Elijah Muhammad to want to have more of a standoff with the, you know, with this group. But, you know, he couldn't do that. So he said, well, at least I can, I can have what, you know, little standoff I can, you know, make have happen in the meeting. But he was not happy and he talked about it at the end of his life and he said he regretted it. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. His time in the nation is, is fascinating and because he becomes one of the nation's most well-known names he really opens the doors to more and more people coming into the nation but the nation is not explicitly involved in the civil rights movement and this is something that Malcolm becomes a bit more he, he there's this tension that gets written about between him wanting to be involved in in sort of maybe perhaps not civil rights per se but wanting to be involved in what's going on and also his real belief in Elijah Muhammad. And then there's a couple of things that happen that break that belief. 
Can you speak about those two moments? Part of it was, I, I, it starts a little bit with what's happening with the, the meeting, right? Mm. We talk about that. That kind of, it separates him. He, is, he doesn't want him to go. This is an unholy alliance if they go into to have any kind of relationship with the KKK. And, mm. he, and he never veers from that, that view. You know, yes, he participates in that meeting, but again, he's not the leader. He's not, you know, he's he's acting as an agent for Elijah Muhammad in the Nation of Islam, as is Jeremiah Shabazz who meets with them. And and the meeting takes place in his home in Atlanta. But it, that starts a rift. Malcolm wants to be, look, and the other things they preach was self-defense. They're not saying we're going to shoot people in the street, but they say, but if you come to us, we're going to fight back. That is why they have the Fruit of Islam and the FOI. And, and there are incidents that happen where Elijah Muhammad's like, you can't do that. In Harlem, you know, Hinton Johnson is, is beat up by the police. And in California, you know, Ronald Stokes, he's, he's killed. You know, and that, and Ronald Stokes was, you know, a stand-up man and a good friend of Malcolm. He, and that, that really upset him, that he could not, you know, it's... It, 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 he could not get that, that revenge even, even just for self-defense on this. And that's what was really tugging away at him. And where's the future of that? Like, if you can't even, you know, stand up. And that's what was happening. And again, keeping in the context of the time of what's going on. Even if you were to do that, the sheer numbers, of course, they're going, the nation's, you know, you can't bring that kind of, and that's what Elijah Muhammad was arguing. You can't bring these people into our home. They'll kill, you know, you don't have those types of numbers. Mm. And so what you see is what what we see is that you've got this sort of the 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 nonviolent sort of mainstream civil rights movement and then the Nation of Islam was sort of set against that almost, even though that may not have been their positioning. But then even despite that, Elijah Muhammad saying, no, you're not allowed to go out and and sort of take revenge, despite the fact that somebody has been shot down or somebody has been beaten up or whatever. And so this so with, then we start to see Malcolm moving away or starting to perhaps question. Then there's, uh, it's quite interesting, actually, the, when Malcolm has a conversation with his, with his brother about Elijah Muhammad's immorality, I think is the term described, used. Um, and that becomes the moment where he starts to separate himself from the traditional nation of Islam. Yeah, I mean... Yes, it's, no. <laughs> I've, yeah, I've I, I argue that it's complicated in the sense that it is one of the issues. Mm. Okay. I think the larger issues are these deeper felt feelings, you know, of we're not taking action. And mm. we, 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 he wants to come from a place of strength. Mm. And again, keep in mind, the Garveyism, you know, mm. knowing who you are and, and, he wants to come from a place of strength. That's, these are, you know, it's, 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 and that's what's really kind of unsettling with Eating them. away at him. Yeah. Malcolm's relationship with Nation of Islam and his subsequent departure, I think, as you say, there's so much context, but underpinning all of that, it's helpful to understand what, what the undercurrent was and what ended up being the fuel for, for some of his desire to, to leave and to come from a place of strength on, on his own terms. Um, and he got this from his mother, not from Elijah Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad built upon that. Mm. And, and, that's, and that's why he really enjoyed 
you know, working with the Nation of Islam because he saw, like his brother, he saw the growth, he saw that they could grow this thing. And mm. and even when you read in some of these things in his earlier days, people had problems with Malcolm because of the, he was the way he was and the people he was trying to attract. He was trying to attract young, educated people, whereas the other, the temples were being filled with, you know, working class people who had not necessarily college education. Mm. You know, so there's there was a there's already a class conflict there, right? And and an understanding of, of how do you attract these people? And people felt uncomfortable. So there was there was tension there, and people, you know, they were like, "What is this change?" You know, we're not, we didn't ask for all that. And and Malcolm actually got sat down, <laughs> punished, and then shipped off to the to the northeast where he went to New England. And so, and that's how he gets in the Boston temple and, and Hartford, he builds a temple in Hartford. And I bring up Hartford because my father grew up in Hartford. And so the reason why that, that's an important um, chapter even, because it's like my father knew Hartford, the city, and that's why he's able to bring out so much details. But he also knew a lot of those families he didn't know them, know them intimately, but he didn't, once he realized that they were going to be part of the story, it just, they grew up together. You know, mm. they grew up in that same environment. But what's important is in this is that you, we really get to see Malcolm build, organize a temple with the permission of Elijah Muhammad, but kind of on his own. You know, Elijah Muhammad's not, you know, standing on his shoulders. And these are people who, some of them are college educated. They all are coming mm. up up north from the south, Texas, Florida, other places. And, and a lot of them driven up north because of lynchings, you know, mm. witnesses to lynchings. And they're like, we can't take this anymore. Or saving their lives, even, you know, where they, they were the ones that were going to be lynched. So, you know, Malcolm gets in and, he, and you get to see him in, in action and organizing, listening to these people and, and how he, he manages to appeal to the people who were working for Pratt Whitney, as well as to people who are, you know, not college educated, who are just straight out of the military, you know, mm. and, and it, and it's really, and a, a really, a, we don't see this in other, we haven't seen this in other words. And, and it was really great for us to, for my father to really dig into that because this was one of his hometowns. And, and, it, and, it, and it's really, you get to see the sense of who Malcolm would have been if he was left alone. Because we don't see that. He's cut down before that happens. He's trying to, but he's cut I down. Think, yeah, I, we, we'll come to that in just a moment. I, because I think that his, the sort of, the year before he's, he's assassinated, a, a lot happens for him. But, but, but before we even get to there, and, and his legacy, I think, is really important to discuss as well. Because I, I, I would agree that I don't think he's ever really left the scene. But it would be remiss for me to not mention his relationship with Martin Luther King and the way in which the mainstream media, and you have a chapter on Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm, and the media, and how that kind of plays a role also in how they're positioned in the American sort of space, especially with the advent of television and so on. Yeah, I mean, we the 20th century is when, you know, television media really takes off, and America leads that that revolution. So Malcolm and both Mar Malcolm and Martin learned to use that to their advantage in their speeches and giving sound bites. Malcolm really masterfully does that, how he looks into the camera and, you know, it's, it's masterful how he does it. And, and Martin also, t you know, too, as, as a, as a, 
reverend, as a minister, and how he's able to move people emotionally and play with, you know, both and play with different sides of the emotions. But I think it's also important to also keep in mind which sides of the street these two are working. Now, yes, you know, because when Malcolm's in the nation and the nation's positions, they don't want to be part of the mainstream, right? And and Malcolm basically kind of really, you know, convinces, drags them into, like, doing the Hate the Hate Produce documentary. And, you know, Elijah Muhammad didn't really want to do that. You know, so Malcolm, like, well, and, and Malcolm as a national spokesman, you know, which, again, permission of Elijah Muhammad, <laughs> you know, this is not something he said, I'm the national spoken. This was given, to, this was a title given to him. And this is his role, and he just works it. He's very successful at this. Mm. And nobody's done this really before, right? Mm. And, and he's the first in that group to do it. And, and Martin's doing his side of it. But wh- what sides of the street are they working on? Malcolm is working on making, dealing with our false sense of inferiority. And Martin is also dealing with that. But publicly, he's really working on changing these laws. You know, there's a section we talk about where Martin talks about where he, he, and it's ironic, it's in, it's in Connecticut. Martin goes to Connecticut for, I forgot what it was. It's, I think he was working on the tobacco farm. I can't remember what it was right now. But he does go through Connecticut and he writes home to his mother and he's just talking about the freedom he felt in Connecticut. And, he, and it made him, he said, it, it left a horrible taste, a bitter taste in his mouth, knowing he had to go back, go back home to Georgia. He want, you know, so they're really focusing on changing the laws of mm. this. And it's not wrong, you know, but they're working on two different um, aspects of this fight. Do you think they almost needed each other or they complemented each other in their work? I think a lot of people tend to... Yeah. They complemented each other, definitely. And I think... In real time, you know, it looks like they hated each other, but individually, they they didn't really hate each other. I mean, I think I'm sure Martin didn't like the like what Malcolm said about him at all. I know for a fact he didn't. <laughs> but there's we open that chapter with a quote from the autobiography where he says, you know, deal nonviolent Martin or supposedly violent me. You know, he knew at some point that he, especially in 1963, he is kind of like a, the backup. You know, like you, you better negotiate, you should negotiate with Martin Luther King. You know, white people, super, the structure, the framework, you know, the lawmakers of the United States. You should deal with Martin Luther King or you'll have to deal with me. And so he, just his presence and is, mm. is able, so they complement each other. And I think, and even at the end, even in this chapter, we talk about there's this secret meeting, even after Malcolm leaves the nation, where he's meeting with members of the civil rights group. And they're, you know, and, and yes, it's all out there. He said all these horrible things and he's, he's left and all that. But even they have to say, he's the one that came up with the idea of taking the civil rights fight to the international level and calling it a human rights fight and to take it to the United Nations. That was Malcolm. And that was Malcolm taking Garvey's into another level. And it's really interesting, actually, that you, that you bring the thread of Garveyism all the way through because Malcolm's next step is he, he goes fully international. He 
travels he goes to he ends up actually his sister his half sister helps him go to mecca he sees africa and i would link that also to gaviism as like uh, connected to all of the the movements and so on so tell us this happens like really in his last year of life mm-hmm. a lot you know it's like you look at the life he lived lived during his teen years is a lifetime in itself mm. the life he lives in the last year of his life is a lifetime you know it's amazing and you know this thing i think it's also important to understand is that when he's traveling he's traveling throughout the middle east he's traveling throughout africa and europe and things are happening and but he's also listening to people he's speaking he's going to college campuses he's going you know in in england he's going to different places he's you know he goes to the you know the university of beirut and you know, and he speaks there and he's listening to the students there and, and what their struggles are. And he's finding like, these people are not black, but they, they identify with mm. black struggle back home. And so he, to say white man's a devil, you know, these people may not identify as white, but keep again, in America, there is black and white, mm. even though they want to say it's not, but let's, let's, be frank. If you look at the basis of America and, and, and all our laws, it, it's it's based on black and white, black people's rights and white people's rights, and and everybody else kind of it's like where do you fall in? Italians were not considered white when they first came in, but eventually they came in. Irish also went through this kind of conversion into mm. being, this, embracing mm. this whiteness, and so you know it, it, there is that here. And so when you go abroad, it's not that. It's, it's, it's a bit, it's different, right? But very similar. Mm. It's, it's, it's more what, what everybody calls is class. But I always argue that racism, as it is in America, is the most basic form of class struggle here. You know, it is. You, no matter where, where you are in this society as a black person, you're going to be six times more likely to be arrested by the police. Mm. You could be a CEO, you could be a billionaire. You're six times more likely to be arrested for any crime that you imagine to have committed. Imagine to commit it, not even mm. necessarily have committed. Mm. So, and that's that's real. Mm. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think of the recent thing about Robert Smith, the billionaire who said that he wanted to pay off the the student loan debts of a class in Morehouse. And now they're saying he he hasn't paid his taxes. Right. And then we have the president of the United States. Mm. <laughs> you know, So, I mean, I, I, I throw that out there. So, again, it's like it, that's real. It's very real. So um, going back and to this emo- Things yeah, like sorry, not, he's listening to their stories. He's going to make, he doesn't know, understand the thousand year histories that's brought these people to this point, mm-hmm. but he said, I'm going to listen. I'm going to, I'm going to let them show me who they are. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to give them a chance. I already know what this is back in the United States is about, you know, and then those people who, you know, he kind of work, he said, it's still about showing them who they are, but he's like, but I pretty much understand what that's about. But mm. this I don't fully understand, so I'm going to give these people a chance to show me who they are. And so then, so I mean, this is just a, maybe a more, a more personal question. Do you think his travels in his last year are why are a key part of why 
Malcolm's legacy seems to be so international? Or how would you, I mean, is there a relationship? Because I think, as you say, Malcolm's messages resonate throughout the world. Where would you, is that, is that related to his, to his faith? Or is it, I mean, what is it about Malcolm, do you think, from your experience of doing, of doing this book, that makes his legacy so, so global and still perhaps so prescient? I mean, the world is smaller. The media is a, a huge pathway to getting information to all these places that he didn't go. He didn't go to Israel. Mm. <laughs> or maybe he did. But it's but like there are places in the world that he did not go to where he is definitely reaching. And mm. so I think that the media is a pathway to all to all of this. It's it's in it's important to understand that. And I think, you know, I think it's all of that. I think it's his travels. I think his travels definitely is a part of that. And then, and I think that it, it his travels strengthen that. Mm. And that his pre- and his presence in all these different places. It strengthens all of that. But then I also think that even if he didn't do that, I think that the images that were coming out of the United States still would have appealed to people. Mm. But the thing is that because of him made traveling it also provides a context for those people to have a direct lineage and direct contact with themselves so i've got two more questions for you thank you for your patience what how would you say what what would you say the impact of his death was on on the united states or what was the aftermath like i think it it was horrible. It was, it was really felt throughout the community, especially people who had followed him. And yes, there were people at the end of his life who they didn't follow him, and, but realized later that man, he had a point or he was right. People who fought, you know, against him, like James Farmer, he came years later and said, you know, he was right, you know, on this. And, you know, and fellow other, you know, civil rights leaders had said, and then they said other things, but it's, it's, it was hugely felt and a void was, is definitely felt is left by that. And that issue for me of dealing with this false sense of inferiority is very important. And it's, it's worldwide, but particularly here, it's, it's very important. And I think that the re, looking at the youth in the nineties, when we first started this project, picking up, you know, who were not just pick, not picking up Malcolm because Malcolm to me never left the scene, as I said earlier, but taking him again all over the world. It was like, a, it was a renaissance again of, of, of Malcolm being out there and the global image, his, fist, his face, his voice, his speeches. But now it's, he's being quoted in interviews. Now you're hearing him, his snippets of his speeches in rap lyrics and in, in rap songs, they just let him, let his voice play. And that's important. Even in, in, in Spike Lee's film, he lets Malcolm speak at the end you know and I and I think that's really important just as even in this book I let you know it was important to me to have that that survey at the end that he did because and um it's it's a survey by the um he's given a it's not it's it's a survey given to him a questionnaire that he answers at the end of his life and Mm -hmm. um it, it shows you where he was because people speculate, well, where was he at the end of his life? And he was, he's, he, I, I want him to show you where he is at the end of his life. 
you know, so there's no question. We're not making this up that he was full, he was full on unapologetically black, full on also unapologetic, you know, and, you know, a Pan-Africanist, you know, taking this around the world and looking at, you know, what, whatever, and connecting up with Africa. He would be, he really wanted us to have a strong relationship with Africa because he knew that there were things, you know, and the, the Africans on the continent could teach us. And there were things that, you know, we, that we would benefit from as African-Americans. And there are things that we as African-Americans can show, you know, people on the continent that they would benefit from. So it's, it was important to him that, that we do that. And he would really be pushing for that. And, and my father and his work did that also when he founded, he was one of the founders of the National Association of Black Journalists here in America, but there is an Africa component to it, you know, and, and that's, that was always important to my dad. And that came, you know, from his admiration of Malcolm. So this work never stopped and, and it's there and it's, he never left the scene and, and, you know, and I'm just glad that Black Lives Matter students, their their youth picked up to him. I mean, I've had a really interesting conversation, and, and I think it's important to say this on the thing, even with Obama, because Obama admired Malcolm, right? President Obama of the United States admired Malcolm. And then you hear these discussions where, you know, young people are saying that they're turning away from Obama's message of hope to Malcolm X. I don't see that as a negative thing. I see that as a growth thing. I see that you turn to Malcolm so that you get that energy and, and analysis of the situation, you know, and, you know, and, and you, then you decide what you're going to do with that, but you have to get the foundation first. And to me in dealing with these, this false sense of inferiority, the internalized racism, this internalized inferiority complex that Af- black people around the world have, you don't really get past Malcolm and Garveyism. But really, you don't. But Malcolm, in the sense that he really took this also to another level, which is further than where Garvey went with it. I love it, and I do. I think anyone who picks up the book should definitely turn. Make sure you don't miss out on the appendix, which was the questionnaire that you speak about. Is um was for the Islamic Center of Geneva, which I really loved as well because I think for you know I see Malcolm as unapologetically black, and he speaks about you know he is doing what he's doing for the 22 million Black Americans and unapologetically Pan-African, and in my mind as well, unapologetically Muslim. And that's something that I think is, is something that I, I treasure a lot in, in, in all of his messaging. Just before we finish off, I mean, you've touched on this just briefly, but what do you think the life of Malcolm X teaches the Black Lives Matter movement and the current human rights and civil justice movements today? I think you just look at Malcolm's life, his his example, even when he was in disagreement with people, you, you, he was a great listener. He, you know, he understood what the struggles were and understanding the relationships of the economy and, you know, and of these systems. That's what was really important for him is to make sure we understand the systems. And, and that's what I'm saying. It's like, you can't understand a system by going to a country for two weeks. So you know, it's, it's really important that we understand what these movements are about. And he really does spend the last year of his life talking about how, you know, the struggles were set up at that time. And they haven't, they're shifting right now. Mm. But before you understand what, where they're shifting to, we really need to understand where they're shifting from. And he really talked about that, the colonization of Africa and what that did to, you know, the minerals and, 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 and then the valuation of lives. 
And so he talks about that. And, and you see that carried out even today when you're looking at even how this COVID pandemic is talked about. I mean, the valuation of, of these lives. I mean, it's, it's, we, we don't have to listen to what the leaders are saying. We have to understand what those lives mean to us. And mm-hmm. Malcolm would have focused on that. It doesn't matter what Trump or, or Boris Johnson or any of these people are saying. And they're saying same, similar things and different things, right? But we know that these lives are important because they're our grandmothers, they're our cousins, they're our teachers, they're our coworkers, they're our husbands, they're our sons, they're our daughters. And, and they mean something. And, you, and they meant something. And they're not, there's no value you put to that you know, with the, with the way the systems are set up right now. You should not put the corporation's value over a human life like this, like that's happening right now. And he would have been, and he would have really, I think, really pushed, you know, pushed and explaining this far better than I am right now. But I think he really would have synthesized this in, in an analytical way in which people would have been, you know, they would have understood. But it doesn't matter what these leaders are saying. Because we, you can still change that. You can still push forward to other things. But know what you're pushing forward to. Don't just knock down a system and then start all over again. I mean, it's like kind of understand what you want to, that to look like and, and how. You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit out of my league, to be honest with you. So. But Malcolm, he's important, and he's important, and I, I'm glad that student, you know, young people are picking him because he's, he's got that energy. The man mm-hmm. died at 39, <laughs> and to have this much of an impact, impact. You, know, mm-hmm. you know, as did Martin Luther King, he died at 39. But Malcolm's, you know, to right now just focusing on Malcolm, I mean, his the impact, mm-hmm. and and he never left, he never left the scene. He never left the scene. Thank you so much, Tamara Payne, for such a thoughtful, insightful discussion. Thank you for all the work that you've done with your father, Les Payne, on this book, The Dead Are Arising. I urge you all to have read of this book, um, to revel in the stories, and thank you again. I'm Yasmin Abdelmajid, and this has been Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.